Jessica, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. We are really excited to have you. And I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of background because this is a little bit surreal and kind of like a super throwback for me because when your book, The Loving Diet, came out in 2015, I was looking back on the review that I still have on my blog from then, and I was like, wow, I remember writing to her at the time to request a copy so I could review it on my blog. (laughs) And at the time, I was super in the like paleo autoimmune world and trying to heal myself and celiac disease through excessive restriction. (laughs) Ha ha, we know how well that works. And the perspective shift that I got from the loving diet at the time of trying to change my relationship with my illness and my symptoms was I think the first time that I'd ever heard anything outside of food restriction to help work through autoimmune disease. So I just wanted to give that as a little bit of a background and a thank you retroactively and currently for being here. (laughs) Wow. Dana, thank you. What an intro. Yes looking at our relationship that we have to our illness, to our diet, to other people, uh, yields a lot of information that we can work with. That's also really unique to us. So thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so as you all can probably tell, this one is really for all the autoimmune disease and chronic illness listeners out here. And then we're also going to be talking about disordered eating and eating disorders. So it's kind of a like I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you've got at least one of those buckets that's filled or something, right? So where I wanted to start with today is how we are constantly evolving as clinicians. Hopefully people are, right? But especially us, right? I just mentioned how, you know, we were both before in the very like paleo autoimmune space. And based on what we've been seeing in our clinical practices over the years, our personal journeys, the research that's coming out, we're constantly evolving as clinicians, right? So tell me and tell the listeners a little bit more about how your specialization has kind of evolved from the time when you were writing The Loving Diet until now. Well, I was all into AIP and I there's a ton of uh, aspects of it that are incredibly useful. But what really started happening was my clients started to become emotionally dysregulated either with orthorexia disordered, which is a form of disordered eating or uh, binge eating, or even being diagnosed with eating disorders. And that stopped me in my tracks. And I had to take a look at what I was doing and the role that I was contributing and also look at how to help people who both were engaged for wanting to help their chronic illness and also felt like they were trapped and stuck and had no choice except for just eating a really restrictive diet. That was the place I came to. So I changed course. It's so interesting because I had a very similar, like, come to Jesus moment, if you will, right? Because I was also, and especially when I first got started in practice, because that was my personal story of, oh, I can use food to help heal myself, right? That, on the one hand, can still ring true. But at the same time, so many people, when you have such severe symptoms and when you have autoimmune disease and when a lot of the functional medicine teachings and even clinical nutrition are, oh, 
you have hypothyroidism, here's this diet. You know, you have an autoimmune disease, here's this diet. And basically, if you don't, the perception when you are a person who's trying those out to help manage your symptoms is, oh, if I don't do this perfectly, then it's my own fault. And that can lead to a lot of guilt and shame. And it can lead to, like you were saying, a lot of orthorexia, a lot of binge eating. There's kind of a built-in natural restrict binge cycle that happens. And then when people would experience these flares, the automatic blame would go to, oh, it must be the food because that's the only thing that changed, right? So, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but the process as a clinician of changing from like, yes, you know, we do a lot of elimination diets and it's food for healing and all the things and it's very, you know, black and white to, well, actually, <laughs> there's this different way of doing things that's very much more psychosomatic and nervous system based and relationship with food and body image and trying to change your relationship with your illness. Going between the two of those, I don't know about you, but I had a very rocky transition. And for a while, I definitely felt like I was floundering until I finally like really hit the what I call frequently like the middle of the Venn diagram. I was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And this feels authentic and this feels good. And people are actually seeing very positive change, not only in their relationship with food, but then also the symptoms that they're experiencing too. So well said, Dana. And when we look at this as clinicians uh, and also as people who are experiencing inflammation or diseases ourselves, there's two ways to look at this. One is, is what is going on on the outside of us and what is going on on the inside of us. And I'm taking the perspective of weighing all of those things. So statistics are really great way of seeing what's going on on the outside of us, which is I got diagnosed with an illness or my doctor, for instance, told me I need to eat a certain way to help my heart disease. That's the one that we all hear about. That is an outside thing. What is the, so it would be the, the question would be, how can I eat in a way that's the most supportive to my physical state that doesn't necessarily cross over to what is going to help me the most. What things can I look at inside of myself that are going to also affect how I eat on the outside. So we take this perspective of let's look at the things on the outside. Let's look at the things on the inside and they both contribute to emotional resilience and they both can dysregulate emotional resilience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I could maybe start out with just one statistic. Uh, there's been so much amazing research that's come out in the last two years. And in 2022, researchers looked at, they took 57 studies. So they, they looked at what has already been understood in science, 57 studies. And they found that four out of every eight studies describing disease that showed people followed a diet for digestive issues for that disease uh, or for food intolerances were at a higher orthorexia risk. So that's like an outside fact, like, whoa, that would be 50% of people who followed a diet for disease or food intolerances were at risk for orthorexia. And, and we just define orthorexia. It's a form of disordered eating where people really want to eat clean in the name of health. And that would be autoimmune paleo or really any restrictive diet, like in the world that we worked in. 
I love that statistic, which if we had that at the beginning of AIP, we might be able to have helped ourselves as clinicians and be better prepared, pull in things that could have helped our clients, but we didn't know because that research wasn't available to us yet. Yeah. And it's so tough because, you know, as clinicians and as, you know, basically patients ourselves, right? I think it is really great to have a clinician who knows what you're going through, right? A lot of my clients have said that to me over the years. It's like, well, you get it, you know, because like you have celiac disease, like you've had a bunch of these other things. So it's not like sometimes when you're a patient, it can kind of feel like you're talking to a brick wall and they're like, oh yeah, just do these things. And you're like, (laughs) wow, I've never thought of that before. (laughs) Like, you know, it's, but it's, that's just not the way that it works or like I can't fit that into my life or something, right? And it's really tough because as clinicians, no matter what your education background is, like you get into clinical work because you want to help people, right? So it's not like we were trying to do harm or people are obviously not trying to do harm to themselves by doing these restrictive protocols for the purpose of symptom management, right? And one of the things that I really like that you talk about frequently is this notion of, well, it makes sense that you would be trying to seek out safety in restriction because it's practical, it's understandable. You know, we're basically given, oh, here's a toolbox. Like, here's how you can manage your symptoms. Of course, you would latch on to that, especially because a lot of people who have autoimmune disease in particular have gone the Western medicine route, and maybe they've even gone the functional medicine route, and then they haven't seen the day-to-day improvement in the quality of life that they're really seeking or really just not aggressive symptoms every single day. So can you talk about that and also why it's really important to realize that that doesn't work long-term? Just treating the symptoms through diet? It isn't. Well, we let's go back to what you were saying, Dana, about uh, I like to go into the middle of the Venn diagram, which is that whole idea that um, we can we looking at all those things is important treating symptoms or, for instance, decreasing inflammation through a restrictive diet. But then the other pieces is, well, what's going on in the individual person? Where's their what's their level of emotional resilience? When we look at the internal aspects, which is when you have celiac, for example, there's a whole host of things that may or may not be present. When someone has celiac, they might be walking around with this. Now it's a mite. So this is where as clinicians, we want to put on our curiosity hat and find out one wrong bite might send me to the hospital. If you have celiac one wrong bite might dysregulate my gut for three to six months. One wrong bite might flare my multiple sclerosis and put me in a wheelchair. When we look at how people are choosing the, uh, the diets they want to be on and using diets to feel safe because of the emotional set point based on their history, their emotional history and psychological history, it opens up a whole new area where we can, as clinicians, t- understand if somebody might be, have the resilience to be on a long-term diet or not. And so then in that regard, we take away the good and the bad if each way a person's going to eat. And we instead say, let's figure out what's going to be workable for you. 
That makes sense. I don't know if I answered the question all the way on that. Tell me if I didn't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, no, it's really important because we, on the one hand, as clinical nutritionists, right, that is our training, we can say that, yes, food can play a role in disease management, chronic illness management, symptom management, and everything. But like you were saying, depending on your emotional resilience, it might not be appropriate for you right now. It might not be appropriate for you ever because when you bring in the level of emotional resilience that you have and the amount of stress that can be brought on by trying to do any kind of restriction, and that can even look like one food, right? The stress response that happens in the body can contribute to the inflammation that you're trying to bring down by eliminating those foods. So it's really a case-by-case -case basis of seeing from the clinician side of things, okay, let me see what this person has everything going on. You know, what have they tried before? How full is their threat bucket? As one of our other guests has said, what is their level of emotional resilience and how much can we do in terms of food and where might it be necessary and really, really helpful to turn to other tools, for example, regulating the nervous system, or you talk a lot about self-compassion, and then there's transformational eating that I want to get into later as well. Yeah, the uh, when we when we look at each person, we know, for instance, that a lot of people with chronic illness have a high ACE score, that adverse childhood experience score. We also know that people with high ACE scores have lower interoceptive awareness, which is the ability to uh, interpret body signals properly, like I'm full or I'm hungry, which is what we need, by the way, to be able to intuitively eat. And intuitive eating does not inherently make somebody's introceptive awareness go up. So if you have a high A score and you have low introceptive awareness and you can take a quiz, uh, there's scientific valid, scientifically validated ways to determine what your levels are, then we know science has already told us that you have pro most likely a lower emotional processing ability. When we can't emotionally process things, that's going to translate into lower resilience. Let's go into that a little bit more, right? Because we, Christina and I talk a lot about um, how the way that intuitive eating has been portrayed by social media and the way that, you know, it gets used can feel for a lot of people like they're being left in no man's land, right? Especially if you have a chronic illness, um, if you have gut issues, if you have chronic symptoms, or if you have a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating, because it can really feel like, oh, just eat whatever you want. And then your hunger cues will come back and then your symptoms will go away. And, you know, all of these like the land of, you know, rainbows and unicorns kind of, which we would love for everyone to be able to get to. But for a lot of people who experience, you know, one of the buckets that I just mentioned, it seems like an insurmountable obstacle because it's like, well, what do you mean? I can just listen to my body if I just eat whatever I want my symptoms are going to go wild, right? Or if you are coming from a very heavily restrictive background, oh, if I just listened to my hunger cues, I might never eat, right? Or some people can feel the other side of things of like, well, I would just be eating forever. Yeah, because see, you went, so for, let's talk about both sides of that. 
you're doing a restrictive diet that requires you to spend a lot of time to prepare all of your foods and you can't socialize with your friends because you don't know what it, you can, you don't know if you can trust the restaurant's food where you guys are all meeting that creates a stress response that is going to skew our ability to interpret hunger cues properly. So we've got that on one side, but here we have on the other side, intuitive eating, which does not, and it's, it's, the, it's a principle of intuitive eating, but intuitive eating does not meaningfully increase introceptive awareness. It is required. Introceptive awareness is required to successfully intuitively eat. But on the other piece of this, we have 57% of the United States now eats an ultra processed diet. 67% of all children and adolescents in 2018, that was the last time it was measured, eat an ultra processed diet. Ultra processed food inhibit our ability to intuitively eat. And I know that that's not a popular opinion. So I'm sort of calling out both sides of like, some people might be listening to this and say, well, I give up. How are we, how are we actually <laughs> make a doable uh, path here for ourselves? But I think it is important because a lot of people are not able to successfully intuitively eat, especially those who have a high ACE score or have a history of trauma. We already know this. It's already been shown in science. And so what we're doing is saying, wow, I guess it's really an individual path now, isn't it? It's finding a team of people who can help you understand the factors that are present, both with your body, your history, the relationship that you have with your illness, uh, and, and create a plan that's specific for you. Yes, exactly. That makes sense. Yes. And making sure that the client feels heard and validated, which unfortunately is not something that always happens with a medical team, right? So speaking of ACEs scores and chronic illness and symptoms and everything, can you talk a little bit more about how you got into working with self-compassion for eating disorders? Well, I've been doing belief work with my clients and uh, belief work, when we are able to change a belief that for the most part lives and is driven by the unconscious, what we find is, is that there's not very many tools that we have available to us that shift the unconscious. So for instance, talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy is useful to a degree, but it doesn't meaningfully change the unconscious belief system that is so woven into how we manage illness in our body or how we manage using food to help us soothe. And really I got into self-compassion because it's shown to help change the unconscious. And one of the few things that can deep care for ourselves, deep love for ourselves, struggling is in, uh, really transcends space and time. So it's able to uh, move anywhere that we want it. Our hearts are incredibly powerful and there is thousands of research studies that back that up. So I got into that because I needed to know, I needed to be able to support my clients in a way that was scientifically validated, but also was gentle new and went on their own in their within their own comfort level of a treatment plan. And that's why I got into it. That's amazing. It sounds like a lot of 
um, the way that we work with clients on not only the chronic illness piece, but also the relationship with food and body image too, as well, right? Because we know that those and the stress of having a complicated relationship with food or body image or anything can also contribute to that stress bucket, which in turn can contribute to your symptoms, which is so tough. So what we know is that uh, self-compassion has been studies, studied and it does increase body image. So that's already been shown. And then the other piece is, is that when you practice self-compassion, it lights up the reward centers of your brain, which I think is really important because uh, empathy, for instance, which gets confused a lot with self-compassion, lights does it lights up um, the pain centers in the brain. Uh, Ultra-processed foods also light up the reward centers of the brain. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's so interesting. And how timely is that? You can eat ultra-processed food to light up the reward centers of your brain if you want, <laughs> but you can also light up the reward centers of your brain by learning how to comfort and soothe the parts of yourself that are hurting, that are suffering and be kind to yourself. There's no, I haven't found any scientific study that shows that there is a downfall or side effect of kindness with ourselves struggling. Yeah. So for people who aren't super familiar with self-compassion work, or for example, you mentioned it commonly gets confused with empathy. Can you go into a little bit more mm -hmm. of what that actually looks like? So uh, self-compassion is made up of three different components. Um, Self-kindness, which is the part about just being nice to yourself. And it's often, it's not like a happy-go-lucky nice to yourself. It's the being nice to the parts of yourself that might feel hopeless or sad or depressed or hold shame. The second part of self-compassion is mindfulness, which is being present with the parts of all the parts of yourself, and which is what is needed in order to spread kindness towards yourself. And then the third part of self-compassion is common humanity. That means that we all live in a place where there is suffering all of us struggle. And so those are the three components of self-compassion and you can work pretty easily to do exercise. I mean, if someone goes online, there are a ton of free resources to get started for free, free meditations, uh, and a lot of information about the, you know, more of the philosophy behind it. That's all free. I also love self-compassion because it's, we all were born with a heart self-compassion arises out of our heart. And we know that when you practice self-compassion, because it lights up the reward centers of the brain, it doesn't fatigue. It doesn't run out. It draws from a well that doesn't ever run dry. So it is a, um, it's a mechanism, it's a mechanism that, uh, charges itself almost like an electric car does your heart's what you plug your car into. <laughs> and it keeps running. <laughs> so that's the piece about self-compassion that I love is that once you understand how to practice it, it is not easy. I'll say that also, it is not easy because oftentimes we have to look, we have to be honest with ourselves about our own suffering and that's hard. And so it can feel painful as we are sorting through these things. Um, but once you learn how it is literally free medicine. Yeah. So it would be a pretty simple jump to see how 
Self-compassion can really affect mental health and emotional health positively, right? But can you talk a little bit more about how we can see uh, the transformation in our physiological health as well? So when we look at self-compassion, it helps regulate the autonomic nervous system. So when we are having a cortisol response or we have a chronic cortisol response, we're secreting cortisol all the time. That's a sympathetic dominance. Uh, I love self-compassion because it balances the autonomic nervous system. It helps bring on that rest and digest because we don't feel threatened. Self-compassion is a really great way of engaging the inner safety tool that can help our parasympathetic nervous system uh, be more online and not so dominated by what happens when we're sympathetic dominated, which is what we have right now in our culture. But I really love it for uh, disordered eating, eating disorders, and orthorexia because uh, it it increases the ability to be able to listen to the signs and signals in our body. And that is absolutely instrumental if you want to move on to be able to successfully intuitively eat. I feel like intuitive eating is fantastic. And when you talk to, I've talked to many researchers and clinicians who work in eating disorder clinics, and everybody wants their client population to graduate to intuitive eating. Um, But there is a huge, uh, there's a huge blank space that needs to be filled where I feel like a lot of people are floundering because they don't necessarily, they feel like they're in remission from their disordered eating, but they don't necessarily feel capable of intuitively eating because they don't have that body trust built up that they can interpret the body cues. So I developed transformational eating and those self-compassion skills for specifically for our relationship with food to help fill in that humongous need that I'm seeing evolve so quickly right now. Yeah. And I love the way you talk about this is kind of prerequisites to intuitive eating, right? Because the way that the um, many people are talking about intuitive eating on Instagram and, you know, TikTok and everything is just, oh, you've come from a restrictive dieting background, just jump right into intuitive eating. And people are like, woo, intuitive eating means you just eat donuts all the time. It's like, okay, well, no. (laughs) But I think you're (laughs) right with, you know, one of the major pieces that is missing is, yes, we can see the 10 principles of intuitive eating, but what is not talked about enough is for a lot of people, especially the populations that we are mainly talking to, there are almost like prerequisites before you're even ready to try that. And we don't say that as a, you know, a barrier to entry, but we say it more as a self-compassion tool, more of a, you know, curiosity tool of understanding of like, well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense why that wouldn't work for you right now. Let's dig into that a little bit more and see what are these obstacles, why you feel like you can't intuitively eat right now, validating that conversation and validating those feelings that you're having. Because again, like we've talked about before, when you get stuck in like this no man's land, a lot of people will then go back to the chronic dieting because they're like, well, intuitive eating didn't work for me. So I might as well go back over here because at least it feels like I had more control. Which yes, goes exactly. get back to the conversation of safety. Exactly. And when we look at, you know, intuitive eating works really well for people who are not traumatized. Well, how easy is it to find somebody 
who hasn't really experienced trauma these days. And trauma is a big word. And I, so I want to also acknowledge that we don't want to throw it around without being sincere about it. We don't want to deny that the diet culture has impacted women and especially women's bodies and how they feel about themselves. Uh, and, and also the role of shame woven through all of this. I can't intuitively eat, then there might be a shame response, or I can't stick to that restrictive diet, there might be a shame response. So that's, um, so when I say all of this, Dana, I'm including all of these important aspects of this conversation. Everybody gets a seat at this table to talk about how to nourish ourselves. And it might be warranted for people to spend a little time to find out if they have a trauma that is affecting their interoceptive awareness, or if they look at skills of decreasing their stress, you know, there's so many things that we can do, but it's important to look at all these factors. But I, I generally see now that a lot of people who want to do intuitive eating long-term uh, are in some ways gently, I'm saying this in a gently required to look at their own personal history, what their A score is. Maybe they can even do an introceptive awareness scale uh, test and find out where you are, where you uh, lie on that. So there's many, many resources that are becoming available to people now. And we can link those quizzes and um, the studies that you mentioned in the show notes as well, if people are interested. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about transformational eating? You kind of alluded to it before, but I'd love to know more too. So I, it's a six week program. It's online. It's a class that helps people understand the skills of self-compassion and how to practice them and apply them to the way that they're eating. So we look at what happened to you and your inner eater. Who's your inner eater? What happened to it? Why does it believe what it believes? What's its story? Uh, so that's a huge piece where we just take the time to understand each individual person in the program's background with eating. The other thing that I do with the program is uh, I do a lot of introceptive awareness techniques. So self-compassion is has been shown in science to be able to incre increase introceptive awareness. But what I haven't been able to find out, that's this is a study that I did when I was at Stanford, is I showed that self-compassion increases introceptive awareness in those with disordered eating and eating disorders, because then it fills in that important blank that intuitive eating hasn't filled in yet. So when I, I I'm completing my compassion teacher certification at Stanford this month. And while I was there, I launched my program as part of my training and did a study on it and showed that people with disordered eating and eating disorders who practice the form of self-compassion that I teach that is specific for eating, increase their body trust, their introceptive awareness, and their self-compassion scores by 30% and more. So I was so happy when I saw that, okay, yes, we're onto something here. And so now I run these groups to help people do a little bit more of a heart-based approach to eating, which 
isn't, isn't the easiest, but it is very effective. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing all of this. Um, I'm sure the listeners will have questions that I will get back to you with. Um, and then in the meantime, can you tell people more about where to find you and where to find transformational eating? So I have, my book is called The Loving Diet and my website is The Loving Diet and my Instagram is my is The Loving Diet and so is my TikTok. So <laughs> if you find. just Google The Loving Diet, we will be in touch. Yes. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks, Dana.